welcome back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Jared Levy, and we are sponsored by Masters in Motion. This week is with cinematographer Gregory Middleton, ASCCSC. Um, most recently, he has done uh, The Watchmen on HBO, as well as uh, Game of Thrones. We uh, went through his whole career, speaking about how he kind of came up um, as a camera operator, and then how he kind of figured out uh, his way through transitioning into second unit DPing, into DPing, and talking about kind of I think he gives he gives a lot of sage advice throughout throughout the course of it. That's kind of um, I think where his mind goes is trying to extol the learnings that he had along the way, which I think is great. And then on the back end, we we dive particularly into episode six of Watchmen, which was the black and white episode. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes of the um, not just of the year in television, but maybe of the, of the last five to ten. I think it's one of my favorite episodes I've I've personally watched. I it, it's really um, a mind blowing one. Not in addition to the storytelling aspect and why it was so important to that season of Watchmen, but also just the technical execution and what they managed to achieve um, within that hour is really spectacular. And we we dive uh, in the last section of the of the podcast, we dive into more of more of a technical conversation than we normally do. Um, and I, I was thrilled to do it. Too. So it was it was really cool to be able to, to pick the brain of, of the guy who shot uh, one of my favorite television hours. Um, so that was really exciting. And um, we are sponsored by Masters in Motion. It's a three-day filmmaking conference that happens every year in Austin, Texas. Uh, this year will be the 10th annual. And so you can go to shooteditlearn.com to learn more. People like Greg Middleton, who was a speaker there in previous years, uh, come down. They give workshops and presentations. Uh, ASC cinematographers, AC editors, big-time production designers. You can go to shooteditlearn.com to learn more. And um, I should say I've been kind of making these announcements um, with every opening that this uh, this was film this was recorded I should say during um, the quarantine when everything was kind of is kind of happening so we do discuss it um, and we do chat about it uh, some some of the ones uh, that are coming up weekly uh, have been recorded previously but uh, with Greg we were able to finally find the time to sit down uh, now that all of us have a lot of free time on our hands so um, we do chat about it and uh, I think it's interesting just to hear how everybody's approaching it um, you know what uh, in what ways are we trying to not get ahead, but, you know, are we taking time to think about um, learning new programs or um, writing, reading, um, anything on the artistic end and anything that might be helping us in our craft? I think I'm certainly looking forward to chatting about those things as we uh, record more interviews during during this time to kind of hear how people are dealing with it. I think it's an interesting aspect of things. And so, yeah, this is Gregory Middleton, ASCCSC. Thank you for being here. I did want to see because I have been seeing a lot of people posting about in the midst of everyone being at home, you know, certain people taking up trying to learn new programs or trying to, you know, yeah. kind of take it to their advantage. I was curious if you were doing anything in that regard about things you were trying to learn or, um, you know, how you're spending your time as it, as it uh, pertains to the craft at all. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just, uh, I just wrote a little thing for, um, the coronavirus diaries that they're doing in variety, just sort of detailing some of that. And, uh, it's interesting. Cause I mean, well, one, it's interesting because I was actually on a little bit of a break myself anyways, right now it's between projects. And I had a little bit of a health scare at the end of last year. So I had some uh, minor surgery and I need a couple months to recover. So mm -hmm. I was kind of, ex I was kind of expecting to be off now anyways. And, um, and so I was going to use that time to retool. I've been working pretty much nonstop for two years. Mm -hmm. And so I was planning on doing exactly that. What are the things I want to do? What's the sort of, you know, retooling and, re, you know, 
recharging time going to compose? And now that's turned into obviously a, lo a long-term project for all of us. And um, it could, I find some of us can struggle a bit more when there's, when we're not on set we're not, you know, having a show definitely uh, to prepare and stuff because it's, we're so used to the flow of that. Um, and now we've sort of created some on our own. So I'm trying to take that time as an, ins this time as an inspiration to help organize myself in that way to try and figure out other creative ways to do it. And also spending a lot of time thinking about the kinds of work that we're going to be doing as we, well, one, the kind of work we could do while we're you know, in this type of quarantine situation. Mm -hmm. um, and then also the kinds of work that we're going to be eventually going back to do. Because uh, I think the days of the 150 person crew we had on Watchmen, you know, that'll be the last type of thing that gets kind of, you know, gets the okay to go back again. Yeah. Because that type of large, large, really large group is going to be the last thing we get to do. Yeah, that's like once we have started. total vaccines yeah. and we're totally past yeah, it. Yeah, that's going to be, you know... Two years, months, maybe? Sadly, eight, 18 months to two years away, I think. Yeah. Um, and, but I think, you know, smaller groups, you know, if we can flatten the curve in areas as we manage it, as happening in other parts of the world, you know, they might, we might be able to do smaller things, in which case we could do smaller shoots, you know, with small crews you know, a small cast and where, what other types of stories we can do, what are the type of techniques we can use production wise mm -hmm. to still tell stories and do things because we're going to, we're going to run out of the new content. We're of a very <laughs> content hungry audience. That's going to be wanting new shows. And it's six months, the, you know, the kind of a, uh, you know, strategic reserve of shows that, and, and movies that people can release is going to be depleted because yeah. um, the shows that are in post will be done. You know, a lot of posts can be done remotely now. I mean, we're doing this interview remotely and, there's a lot of things we can do in this type of format and yeah. to prepare and to conceptualize. And uh, so I've been thinking a lot about what those things will do and then what, again, how to apply my skill set to what that environment's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, not doing virtual cinematography or stuff with virtual backgrounds, the kind of things we've been exploring more in the last uh, few years with. Like Mandalorian of, type stuff? Uh, sorry, you broke up there. Like, like, like what Mandalorian was doing in terms of that? Yeah. Those, those sets, those yeah, uh, sets. In, some, in some ways, that's a little bit more front heavy because it requires, you know, you have completed visual effects to shoot against. Yeah. You know what I mean, so it's a, it's a, but you can, in that context, that's, um, that is a type that can get used. Cause again, that's pretty, you can do that with a fairly small technical crew. Right. That's, you know, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Eight, eight or ten, eight or 10 technicians, two or three actors. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you, you get out of something like 20 people. Um, that's something that might be more possible, right? Actors doing their own makeup and stuff like that. You know, they've all <laughs> once done theater, you know, so it'll be so they'll be dressing themselves. There'll be nobody fitting them and, you know, um, but we'll adjust to these things because we, if, you know, film crews and film people, if anything, are, are, you know, massive problem solvers. I mean, everyone's trying to make a film is always trying to do it with not quite enough resources or have to come with an innovative way to tell their story and, you know, in a way they can and in a location they can and everything. And, this will just be, you know, the biggest test we've had of how to adapt to these types of conditions. So I've just been thinking a lot about that and what type of things we'll get to do. And also the content of the stories. I mean, this is going to be a very, you know, this is like a World War type of event, right? Where mm -hmm. you look at the stories that came out of Hollywood and stuff after, yeah, um, you know, World War II. I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which you know was kind of a failure when it first came out, but you know had a real second life when it was on PBS and it was in public domain. And if you watch that film, even though it's sort of a you know it's a almost a Dickens-like story about you know sure. it's a little bit of like a you know an, Amer an American version of um, uh, of a Chris of a Christmas Carol in yeah. some ways. Yeah, yeah. You know, looking back in his life when George Bailey is looking back in his life about what the world around him would be like without him. And but there's a real you know level of 
darkness and drama to the performances and what happens. It's a real desperation in Jimmy Stewart's performance at times. Like, it's quite, you know, it's very intense. And that's all, you can see that's all colored by the experiences of all of them that had just come back from the war. I mean, he was a bomber pilot. Frank Capra was doing documentaries during the war. I mean, they all lived through some pretty horrible times. Uh, and you can see it's informing the performances and the and the types of things that we're interested in, stories are interested in telling. And, you know, I think we can be inspired by that about what we're going to be trying to tell and mm. the kind of stories we want to make. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. It's interesting. This is, this is the first, um, an interview recording I've been doing since we've really been in the heat of this. And so it's, it'll be fascinating as I have more lined up to just chat with people about what they're thinking about in terms of this, all this stuff and fascinating to hear, yeah. you know, where, where you're at with it. But um, to dive into what I was hoping to talk about uh, prior, to, <laughs> <laughs> prior to the world uh, coming to a halt, um, I wanted to start with, because I had spoken to uh, Craig Robleski, who's also another Canadian cinematographer, yep. and we had a really interesting conversation at the beginning of that talk about what it meant to grow up in Canada and view the um, film industry and how you were thinking about and getting interested in filmmaking and you know where you were located, what that um, what kind of impact that had on how you were initially thinking about it and um, trying to be involved? Yeah, I think that's I think that's always an interesting question for anybody involved because they want to be kind of. I'm always curious about like why people. It's one of the questions I ask you know people I'm working with. Sure. Or you know what I mean. Interviewing crew is like, well, how'd you get into this? Like, why are you here? Yeah. What is uh you know what inspires you? What do you like about it? What you know? What's important to you? Because you want to see how in alignment you are with them in some ways, um, and a couple of different perspectives. And you know, like I grew up in the suburbs of Montreal, and uh, you know, I didn't know anybody in any. No one I knew or my parents knew anything about you know film or TV. I think my mom did some modeling when she was a, she was young, um, uh, but there was no like experience. There was no you know. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. I wouldn't have spoken to anybody from that world. Yeah. Like the first contact I had with anybody professionally was um, there was a television movie of the week, which I think was called A Time to Live, I think, starring Liza Minnelli and Jeffrey DeMunn and Corey Haim. And it was shot uh, partly in a small suburban house in the neighborhood near where I grew up. And me and my best friend, uh, Simon, who's also a writer and showrunner now, um, and his mom used to manage the local curling club. Very Canadian thing to do, curling <laughs> club. So uh, anyways, and that, of course, they had a big hall and stuff. And that, uh, so the production was going to use their hall for, um, you know, their lunchroom and that kind of stuff. So, of course, uh, Simon and I have been making Super 8 films uh, since we met and, you know, building models stuff together. So being that big interest to us, we I think we were teenagers. We were probably 14 or something like that at the time, 14 mm. or 15, and uh, or you know, maybe younger. And... Um, so uh, his mom is like, well, yes, we, of course you can use my uh, facility. We'll rent out loud. And she was very, you know, accommodating, used to running events at the curling club. Uh, but she said, now my son and his best friend are very, you know, keen on this whole film thing. So uh, I need you to, you know, I need you to help them and employ them and get them to do something. <laughs> so, oh, that's awesome. So the, so the production is like, okay, well, we can't really, obviously, we can't, we're not obviously capable of doing anything. But, you know, we need someone to watch the uh, equipment every night, you know, when we go home. They do, they do walkway wraps sometimes. Mm-hmm. They leave the house. I mean, it's a suburbs. It's a pretty quiet mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. So they would leave their gear out. So they hired us to, like, basically do fire watch at night and just hang out. So, of course, then there was a whole film set there, and we'd be there just when they're wrapping and oh, watch wow. the crew sit apart. And there'd be the, you know, the camera dolly be sitting in the garage. They'd be sitting there with a little, you know, flask full of tea and a 
radio. This is like, you know, this is pre-internet days. Yeah. So, um, and walk around and also, uh, we got to, you know, watch them work a bit, you know, when they'd start working in the morning and, uh, it was first like real look at a, uh, a professional crew. Fred Murphy was the cinematographer actually, who was, you know, very, very good DP. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, I think the director was, uh, Rick Wallace. Uh, he used to be an AD for John Carpenter and he, uh, I he spoke to me and Simon at, at the, as they wrapped that location, they had a little like, you know, dinner party at my, um, at, uh, Simon's folks place. Mm-hmm. And he talked to us for a while and, you know, gave us some inspirational talk. And that was the first contact with anybody professional. That's pretty great. As first a, contact. I mean, especially yeah, it, was pretty, it was pretty great. It sort of showed you that it existed. That's what I was going to say. It was very real. Like it wasn't, um, yeah. it was very grounding, you know, cause it's all, yeah. this is how it actually works kind of thing. Yeah, it's and it's in a it's in a familiar environment, right? You were just at a house like any other in your neighborhood, and it's like you watch yeah. these, this crew, and you know a mixture of crew, like a lot of Montreal crew, people they brought in from New York, and some real mixture of people. And um, but that was the first like person we met, so everything was always the thing was when you grow up in the suburbs or somewhere outside of Hollywood, it does seem like a very foreign, strange, you know, uh, abstract thing. It's like it doesn't it doesn't seem like a real thing you could actually get near sometimes. And you, yeah. you read a lot of books and stories and it can seem very fantastical. But trying to ground it into something that is like a real thing you could do, it you know, only happens when you finally meet some people. So it went from, you know, making films as a kid, making them in high school, and then uh, I met another friend in high school. Um, and the three of us, you know, made a film together to kind of like try and get into film school and the film program in university. And that turned out to be um, Going to the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver, where I am right now. Yeah, and that was the sort of beginning of like, okay, well, now how you know can we make a profession out of this? Is there a way to you know keep going and, and make this something we could do instead of a hobby? I mean, the best advice I got from my high school guidance counselor in those during those years was, which actually was quite smart. You, most people like to joke about their high school guidance counselor being. Don't you had a good experience us, but, though. But this was a great bit of advice, which was because um, we were you know me and my friend Steve uh when we were like 15 I think we we're we started like a movie club in the high school and they gave us some money to, you know we shoot great films we would document the you know the graduation ski weekend and things like that and the guidance counselor was like okay obviously you're going to do this it seems like a, a an interest you're going to keep doing so you really just have sort of one decision to make you're you're obviously not going to st- give up this interest something you really like a lot you just decide now if you want to try and make it a career or whether it's going to become a hobby, because you're obviously still going to, it's going to be part of your life, clearly. And that's just sort of a simple way to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know where it's going to take you, but mm-hmm. which was very simple. It was a simple piece of advice, but it was actually really important. It was like recognizing the things you really, you know, connect to and like and do that. And the second great bit of advice I got was from my, uh, my father, who is an electrical engineer. Um, and he, you know, he was an, he was, like he was of say older generation, so he was pretty old when uh, when I was born. He was forty three when I was born, so he was like born in nineteen twenty four. Mm. But he um, he was always very forward thinking, and you know he had no experience in the arts or no experience in like the idea of me going to you know filmmaking scene. Like after he may have said, "Yes, I want to go become a circus juggler." Yeah, he'd been like, "Okay, I, my son wants to go join the circus." Yeah, I'm very concerned he's not going to be able to feed himself. You know, <laughs> it's basically that kind of abstract. Sure. But the one but the one great piece of advice he gave me, which was. Um, my mother was very creative, and you could see that in me. My mother passed away when I was very young. Mm. And um, he was, uh, you know, advice he gave me was the one thing he learned is it's really, it is very important to enjoy what you do because you spend so much time doing it, and you'll spend so much time around people, you know, when you're doing these things. It's a, it could be a big part of your just life. And 
if you do really like something, your chances are you might be a bit, you hopefully will be pretty good at it in some way if you have a real passion for it. And it's very clear. He's like, I could see you really like this thing. I don't know anything about how it's going to play out, you know, later. Yeah. But, you know, I think you should, yeah. So he let me switch into arts out of like sciences and keep going. And, um, and, uh, that was really good advice. And it turned out, and it's something you, I wouldn't, you know, never normally expect out of someone born in you know, rural Scotland in 1924. Yeah. And I mean, just to have that type of parental support, um, when you are making a decision that big and you're going into the arts versus anything else, um, yeah, is really pivotal, I would imagine. Oh yeah, completely. I mean, it was just me and my dad. I don't have any siblings, so mm. it uh, it meant a lot. I, I don't know what if would have done if I had to rebel against him to go do it. I'm yeah, a, yeah. A different conversation. Now, but, were you uh, finding it possible in Canada to to start building that career, or did you feel like um, was there a move to America imminent? And how were you making that decision? Well, it's yeah. When there was was sort of looking at film schools. You know, we looked at all the, you know, look at all the major places in the world at the time. This is in the, you know, early, this is the late 80s. So uh, we're thinking of like every school. Okay, where do all the famous filmmakers come from? All the filmmakers that, you know, the American filmmakers I admired, like the Hollywood directors, where do they, where do they go to school? And you looked at that, it's like, oh, well, to go to the USC will cost $100,000 American a year. That's a foreign student. It's like, oh, well, that's kind of out of the question. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not, that's kind of out of the, that's kind of off, that's kind of off the, off the menu. Um, and, but the one thing about reading all the books about those experiences was you realize at the time that those filmmakers were going through those schools, the schools were actually very small. Like the film departments were very, were not, were not large. And it seemed like from the books that I'd read and the other cinematographers and, and filmmakers that you really, uh, you got out of the film school, mostly what you put in. And, uh, and it was less about going to a giant institution that was going to guarantee some type of, you know, pedigree at the time. So a small school didn't seem like a terrible idea and, uh, and wanting to get away from home as you are when you're at 18 or 19, you know, at school in another city like Vancouver, something not, not a bad idea. Uh, and it just became, so at that point it was like, Hey, we can't go to us for school. We can't do that. I can't go to Hollywood at this point. Let's go to school now, figure out, you know, go through that process, figure out what we can learn. Um, and then the first, you know, a couple of experiences I had were here, uh, on a couple of small art house little films made by grad students over the summer. Um, and I couldn't have planned it, you know, couldn't have planned it better if I had any more knowledge, but it turned out that Vancouver was a very good place to be at that time coming out because the industry was expanding here a lot. Yeah. There was a lot of, you know, sort of like runaway production and, and also just a general, like there was a lot more TV shows being made and sort of, you know, production for those type of shows were expanding all over the world. And this place became fairly busy. And so as I was starting to shoot more um, coming out of school, there were some opportunities. And after a few low-budget films, I got in the union and then as a camera operator. And then I got to learn from a lot of other, you know, people on uh, doing like B and C camera on other TV shows. Yeah. And that provided a, like a separate track to improve myself apart from, you know, the track of being a young cinematographer trying to, you know, learn by shooting everything I could. Yeah, because I, I was going to it's interesting that you kind of like let it into that because I was going to say that it seemed at least from just, you know, reading something as simple as an IMDb that early on you were getting a lot of consistent camera operator work. Um, and I was just, con I was curious about how, you know, how you were navigating your career in that moment and how you knew um, to do that in, in the sense of knowing that that would be the best way to kind of build your career and, and move move forward and move up yeah i mean you sort of you know you 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 have to use the opportunities that present themselves to you yeah um, and uh one thing that um 
only thing I have, like, the first project I worked on, like, the summer after I graduated from school, I was also, I'd also applied to the union. At that point, I'd worked at Panavision over a summer and, like, clean cases and filters and learned a lot about the 35 mil film cameras. Uh, Panavision was a pretty small rental place, you know, it was expanding quickly because it was a lot of, of work. Um, and when I left, uh, they were like, hey, you, I, I said, look, I have to go back to school now. It's like September's coming. I have to go back to you know, my last year of university. And they're like, well, do you know, have a friend that can come fill in for you? Because now we're used to having, you know, yeah. someone like you around yeah. to do all this extra work because now we're busy. Um, so I recommended a friend I met in film school the year before. And he's now, he's the manager there now, actually. He's still there. Still? Company. After all these years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And he, yeah, he was kind of the perfect person, actually. He's, uh, he's uh, meticulous and, and loyal and very smart and. It worked out really well, but um, I, the summer after I graduated, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, do I go home or, you know, I grew up or do I stay here? And the, uh, the sort of grad, the graduate students who were, because I was just getting a bachelor's degree, the graduate students were doing like a master's program. And part of that was to make like a long form film of some kind, either experimental or, or narrative. And um, this one uh, filmmaker was making their sort of, you know, narrative like very David Lynchian black and white feature that summer. And they had to use all students for crew. And so that became, okay, well, great. I have to, we have a good chance of getting to work on that because they have to use us as crew. And so I got to be the camera operator on this film. I'd shot a lot of other students' films. So mm -hmm. I had, you know, I just obviously displayed enough, you know, talent and determination to not be uh, a liability, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and the, and uh, the director, John Poser, hired a... Uh, quote-unquote professional cinematographer, someone actually shot a whole movie before, mm -hmm. uh, a guy from uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Peter Wunstorf, uh, who's also an ASC member now, who actually was one of my sponsors for the ASC. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and, yeah, and Peter was like shot like a like, to one or two small little movies, and he was a great student of Gordon Willis, and, and um, like a, he's a, a fine artist even at that point. He was, you know, this is a long time ago, now, this is 25 years ago, and he... Um, and, he was, and I learned a ton from him. We spent the entire summer making this weird little black and white movie called The Grocer's Wife, uh, shot in black and white, black and white stock on, a, on an old SR camera. I had to wear a furniture blanket over my head the whole time because the film stock was so loud because the, there's no ramjet backing on the old black and white stock, so they chatter a lot in the yeah. those cameras. And we spent the whole summer making this very strange little weird little movie. Um, it turned out really well, and it got into the Cannes Film Festival in 1991. And... Um, and that's how I met, met Peter. And then uh, the following year, another filmmaker I'd worked with in school, uh, Mina Shum, made her first film. And uh, she hired Peter because she was impressed with his work on the film. And, and she wanted to work with me because I had shot a lot of her student films. So we, Peter and I worked together again on that. That was her a second film. Uh, then I had two credits. And then I got a job with some other friends doing some visual effects photography on a very, very low budget straight to video, you know, <laughs> terrible. I mean, these are terrible films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was they, they all stuff. can't go I've to can, you know? Yeah. Not all, not all of them can. Yeah, I've done a lot of that. It was a film called Extro 2, if you want to go look that one up. Um, <laughs> and like models and puppets and stuff like that. But we'd, I'd done that kind of work as a kid. And, yeah. And it was, a, it was a movie. You know, it's like, and we, you know, we're all making $200, $200 a week on that. Sure. And the, the DP on that film, uh, it was a fellow named uh, Danny Novak, and he was going to shoot more films for the straight to, straight to video company. He was making these like kind of pretty awful, you know, two million dollar straight to. This is back in the days when you were basically selling these films by the by the pound at the Cannes Film Festival market, you know, and yeah. VHS tape. Yeah, yeah. But they were still productions, and um, they were non-union, and they were, you know, you still had to make a movie. And and so I approached Danny because I'd done the VFX work on that other film. I said, look, up, I really want to keep doing, you know, the live action stuff, and. You know, do you do you need a camera operator? Except you know, I, I had two credits already, and 
I shot a bunch of stuff on a film he'd already done. And he was like, well, I'd love to have one. I'd love to have the help, but I don't think they can afford to do it. So I said, well, let me go talk to the production manager. So I went and cut this insane deal for like no money because they wouldn't pay me almost anything. I said, look, I'll basically do it for almost nothing. Whatever you can just, yeah, whatever requires the paperwork to say you can hire me, I will do it for that. Um, And then I worked with him. I did two films with him and then I had four credits and another film with another cinematographer and then I had enough to sort of apply to the union and and get in as a camera operator. I was still quite young and there was a lot of, you know, sideways looks at that point when you're mm-hmm. you know, when you're that age. Um, but you but knew, that's sort of how that part of the career started. Yeah, um, I mean you you understood the value of just of of working with the right people regardless of you know, if it's paying right or anything like that. Where where was that guidance coming from? That's a good question. I um I think, I mean, I, there were a few interesting books that I'd read. One of them was Masters of Light, which is an sure. older book with that interview, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that sort of taught me a couple things about, one, how different all cinematographers are. Uh-huh. And also the kind of journeys when some of them are like, well, how do you learn? You know, like in Vilma Sigmund and, you know, his contemporaries are like, just shoot everything, man. Just get out of your camera and just shoot, 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 and learn as you go. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, not coming out of any, not knowing any professionals at the time that were still doing it. It was like, that seems to be maybe one way to do it. And I think that makes more sense to me. The same summer that um, uh, that very first black and white film was made when it was like the first thing coming out of school, I did get the call from the union because I'd been on the list for the trainee program, mm-hmm. uh, which was a huge long list. It took a while to put myself on like a year earlier. And they called me in the middle of the shoot and said, hey, your name's come up so we can take you in the union and this. And I said, no, I turned them down. <laughs> and the woman, the, the secretary at the union thought I was out of my mind. I was like, are you kidding? You've been on this list for like a year. Yeah. And you're now what you're operating, quote, unquote, on a film. Like you're you know, you're, tw- you're 22. You're like, come on. Like <laughs> you're, you're making a mistake, kid. Like, come on. You're going to destroy your chances of having a career. And but I was so um, I was so wrapped up in making this film and every day being on a camera and working with, you know, with John, with Peter. And That's a hard thing actors. to walk away from. And I was like, there was, I couldn't imagine leaving that. Yeah. And I'd already, you know, I'd worked as an assistant already at load mags and commercials. I, I like, I knew what that was. I thought I can't go spend seven more years doing that while I'm already doing this now. I'll just, I'll die trying to do this and see if I can find someone else that will take me on after this and in some way. So, yeah. And I mean, and, and it seems like soon thereafter you started getting second unit, um, DP credits started to sprinkle in with that. And, yeah. And I was curious. Yeah. yeah go well, ahead. Cause like a lot of, I was going to say a lot of, a lot of you know, people I met in school or after, um, you know, you could get, you could still get some, you know, people would still, you know, they'd still gather somebody together to make a short film. Mm-hmm. I shot about like 25 short films in that stretch of just, uh, just anything to, you know, uh, the experience of shooting something, designing something, of learning how to light something. And, uh, and that was a huge learning curve. Just that was part of the shoot everything you can and learn along the way. And if you had a you know a short script that, it, that I thought was it'd be kind of cool. If it's like yeah, if I can you know gather the I'll call every friend I know, everyone worked on you know the first films I've done, and and that was a great way to learn. Uh, and that would again build up your sort of you know uh, credentials as a DP. Absolutely. And then, then I just took the, the time to get and then do starting second unit on those films. I would operate on these. Not so great movies, and then we get to shoot the second unit sometimes, or and I do the the reshoots or whatever sometimes. Yeah. Like, you know, is there a main unit? Is there a um, uh, anything that stands out in terms of the second unit opportunities that either it just stands out because it stands out, or also that in that moment maybe you felt some sort of switch where you're like, you know, I I really I'm ready to be 
like a DP full time and really like put my energy into that and and maybe at a certain point stop saying yes to things that are not just being a DP? Was there an indicative I think, I mean, when there was, I, well, was there I, an indicative I, moment? I really wanted to, well, I think the big thing, the watershed sort of moment is at that point is it, like I wanted to, you know, I want to shoot the entire like low budget feature film, right? It was the, I want to shoot one feature. Uh, if you're responsible for that as a cinematographer, and I don't know, didn't know when that was going to come and where how that would come, and probably come in a similar way that um, it had happened with Peter uh, before me, and and that that came five years after film school. Yeah. Uh, and Lynn Stockwich, who was actually the production designer on that black and white film, it was her first film, and it was actually made in the same sort of guise of like this, you know, that we used to we used the university's equipment on the summer. It was her master's thesis project, mm-hmm. and it was a film called Kissed, starring uh, starring Molly Parker. Um, and uh, Peter Outerbridge and Molly, I had met on a short film for uh, with another filmmaker, Mark Sars here. And I, I met, I was wor- I was working on a film in Toronto at the time. It was John's second film, and Lynn passed over the uh, the idea for the script. We said, "Look, I th- here's what I want to do: is um, here, it's based on a short story. Read the short story, and I read it, and it's you know it's completely bonkers because it's about a female necrophile. If you know what, the, what necrophilia means, and, yeah. and I'm like, this is going to be one, very difficult and interesting about uh, obsession. And it's exactly the kind of thing you can only make a tiny film about because you'll never, that film will never get made by a large company. You're not going to have no, it's going to raise millions of dollars to make a film about necrophilia. Sure, sure. And that's exactly what you, you know, the kinds of film you can explore these ideas with is, is a, you know, is a small first time film made for very little money. So I was super excited. I met Molly. I met Molly on this short film, and even though the character was written as like a buxom sort of Dolly Parton or um, Marilyn Monroe blonde, mm-hmm. and Molly's you know has a you know has a this is slim and has like straight dark hair, very different than the character was written. But yeah. I thought Molly would be really interesting. I thought you know you would like you would really like Lynn. I got I have to get them to meet. And I have to suggest her because. One, I told Molly, it's like you will never get a chance at another part like this every career. <laughs> like we're both we're both really young. It's like this is this could be amazing and you know terrifying and everything like that. But also like this could never you may never get this again. And you should definitely meet Lynn because she's amazing. And so they, anyway, they met and they became friends and just cast in the film. But that was the that was the thing I was you know uh, looking for. And I just got very lucky with the type of project that it was and the fact that it turned out so well. And. Um, and that got to be like a first career marker because it actually got into film festivals, got into Sundance and Cannes and got nominated for some awards. And wow. I, I think that, you know, pretty good work on the film, hopefully. And that was then I could call myself a professional because I'd actually done, here's a you know complete narrative feature that I've done work on that I'm yeah. proud enough to show. And that, and I gave myself, you know, five years coming out of school and I just made it under the wire. <laughs> I mean, get, when you, did, and did you go to so Sundance with it? Then I could call myself a professional. Had shot one film and mm-hmm. people have seen it. You know? mm-hmm. No, totally. Um, did you go to Sundance with it? I did. Yes, it was. Uh, I when I was never not going to go. I went to Cannes too. I mean, it was it was a, a hilarious experience. Sundance was in totally intense. This is nineteen ninety seven. And how yeah, old were you? Ninety seven. When I was, I was twenty nine, thirty. Okay. Okay. I think. And how yeah, do you feel? I was, I was twenty-seven. I was twenty-seven when we shot. We shot. In, we shot in the summer of ninety-four. Yeah. And then we shot some reshoots the following summer. So I was, yeah, I was twenty-nine or thirty. Yeah. And how do you feel um, those experiences went? Did, did, did I'm curious about people's, you know, in terms of just I don't know if they if if they are capitalizing on the opportunity that that presented, um, 
how do you feel about that? Well, I think, you know, actually, I sort of back up and talk about what you mentioned earlier, which was like, what would these, you know, how are these formative experiences, like how do they affect your attitude, like where you came from kind of thing? And mm. I think, I think those are like your first experiences are very, like imprint on you a lot, right? Mm. Um, because that was very, it was a very intense experience making such a small film, also about a very intense subject. And like any first film, there's a lot of like, you know, you only get a chance to make a first film once, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, the director put a lot of pressure on herself and so did I. And so it was very, it was very intense, but it was also um, like a real, you know, uh, an example of a, you know, we were all basically working for nothing yeah. and it was just a team of people that believed in it and we're just going to do anything to make it. Yeah. And, and work, work their best and, you know, ask for help and do all the things you have to, to make a small film. And that type of experience really, affected the kind of attitude that I would have towards everything afterwards because mm. I, you know, that was the sort of formative thing and it turned out well, you know, it was, it maybe may have been hard and everything else, but you sort of carry that attitude with you and everything else after. And then you sort of look for that in the other filmmakers and people you meet and you sort of see like, Oh yeah, I think I can work with this person because, you know, mm. you sort of see their, their drive and you sort of understand what they're going after and what they want. And I think that really helps navigate the kind of choices you make and the people you, um, try and try and work with and yeah. everything else. And it, that's how like the second, um, the year after I got really lucky, I shot three features the year after it came out and they were all very small. And one of them was, um, uh, directed by Jeremy Pedeswa, who's the director I worked with on game of Thrones in the last uh, few years. And it was his second film. And he had met, uh, Lynn at a film festival and he'd seen uh, the film. He liked my work in the film but an important thing for him was he met Lynn and he liked Lynn and thought, well, if this person can work well with this person who I think is uh, pretty interesting and cool and uh, this filmmaker seems similar to me, then I should definitely talk to him. So he, we interviewed on the phone and I read a script when I left the script and then, so he hired me. And that was, again, meeting from meeting the other filmmaker. And so, like, to become a professional, part of it is, you know, you want to be able to do work, have people you've worked with, you know, have experience with you and then they can people could check you out that way and then that's how you end up you know getting your next job usually and that hasn't changed that's the same way i get every job now sure 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 you know, 25 yeah. years later yeah um but that was a that was an interesting you know it was interesting coming to that figure understanding and i, I felt very lucky at the time so yeah um and then with with the festivals did you feel like that was something that you capitalized on? Was it just something that you went and there wasn't really that much to gain from it? Like, how, how was your experience within that? I mean, for me, it was like the, first me the memory of being, I mean, to see your film you shot with an audience at a yeah. festival is like sure. one of the best things. If, if any cinematographer out there is doubting their, or director doubting the desire or need to go and do that, uh, you have to go do it. To see it with a, a festival audience is, you know, they're an audience that's eager and interested in what they're going to see and it's a great experience and mm -hmm. it can't be replicated. And that was the first thing was to go there just to be there. I was, and I, I thought, well, maybe I'll get lucky and I'll meet a filmmaker or two that'll, you know, see the film or hear good things about the film. And I met a few people, and I did not, not nothing ever came out of those things. And it mm. wasn't like hustle, hustling necessarily. I was too naive to even know what that could, could look like. Yeah. And I didn't really feel it wasn't really part of my personality to be like that. I was just yeah. hoping if luck should have it that I meet somebody, great. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I was just new to naive to know anything else at the time. At the time. I mean, it, it seemed like it didn't even matter considering you came off that and you said you just did three features in a row afterwards. So it's like it wasn't exactly the pivotal thing for getting new work. Yeah, it was It was definitely the fact that the film was received well. Sure. And, you know, then people say, OK, it's received well. They hear good things about my work. Um, 
you know, then they check you out. They do another film. Okay, I hear good things about that's good. Then you're going to get, you know, they can, I mean, you, you realize that, um, you know, part of getting hired is, you know, we're storytellers and part of getting hired is understanding there'll be a story told about you and there'll be a story told about how you fit into the project and why they picked you. That uh, the filmmakers or the producers, and I won't want to have a story about, you know, what this is about, like why they're engaging you. Mm. And uh, at the time I got lucky because I was like, oh, he made this cool little dark art house movie and, you know, made something that I didn't expect could be, you know, beautiful or interesting into that. And so that's a plus. And then you hear that he's, you know, hopefully good to work with and you want to be, you know, my mission is to be everyone. Every, I want every filmmaker to walk away thinking I don't want to make another film without Greg. <laughs> you yeah. Because yeah. that's what do you that's I mean, if that's who they should pick, right, they should pick the person that's going to help make them the best film they can make. And, you know, you want to try and be that person. And once you've had, you know, one or two experiences, hopefully that's the reputation you get. And then they can say, mm-hmm. hey, this guy's a uh, young up and comer. He's got good talent. And we're hearing good things about him. He's, he's local and he's cheap. Great. All, you know, like. <laughs> how, how, how I am curious about what you just mentioned, though. Um, how active are, were you or are you in terms of crafting, helping craft that story for what makes you fit? Uh, well, that's interesting because you can't make you can't. Uh, what I'm saying is that story will get made about you know in any hiring scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they people have to justify their decision to their superiors or their partners. Sure. And so a story will be made, and you know, just sort of it's just something I wasn't even aware of at the time, but then I was hearing about it. I remember um, I, was, I did a pilot with a director, Gil Younger, who did a lot of comedy. It was a pilot for Kyle XY, which was a uh, uh, kind of a you know youth-oriented sci-fi show. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing ads for Matt, it. Matt Dallas and it was, it was the two guys that did the butterfly effect. Wrote it. Uh, uh-huh. Anyway, so uh, but you know it was it was it was quite busy, and I had never done a, a network pilot before. It was ABC, and I had done you know what I'd done a few small movies, everything else. But I didn't know. I mean, as far as the American Network go, go, I was like persona non grata. Like, well, he sure. hasn't anything for us, so he's done nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so so Keel had to really. He had to fight for me. It's like, well, look, this kid's obviously really good. Yeah. He's, you know, he's got the chops. He's done this kind of films, everything else. But to them, it's like, come on. He's never known. He hasn't done network TV. So he hasn't, he doesn't know anything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had to fight for me. Mm-hmm. And so in that context, he has to come out. He has to, you know, craft a story of like, well, who is this person and why do I want him? Yeah. And it's like, so I'm going to, I'm going to like, as like you would do now in a modern, you know, in a more modern scenario. You're going to craft the story based on what you want, which is, well, this is, here's what I want to do with the material. Here's what I want to get out of this. What, I, what here's what I'm hoping to do with the pilot visually. And this is why he's the right pick. Yeah. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to describe the pick and describe what I want. And it, you know, and he made a good argument for the artistic quality and the kinds of things he wanted to do and how he didn't want to be, you know, like these certain types of shows and picked other types of work. And I fit that, even though I didn't have the experience that, uh, yeah. you know, that work wanted. So they approved me. And that got me the first thing. So, but he had to make that narrative of like, okay, de- defend your choice of this person. Well, I guess what I'm really like, what I'm, what I'm really getting at too is that I ask this question, and I find that it ends up being kind of a fifty-fifty split of people who are kind of being proactive with their career advancement plotting, so to speak, versus people yep. who are like, you can't really, who don't take that approach at all. And I'm curious where you land on it because I guess when you're talking about, well, you're crafting your story for what gets you the job itself. Um, you know, well, is, that's, is, that's is that that version? The story. Yeah, but I think in this context, well, I think to answer that question is, uh, I would answer that by this. I, I mean, 
people can be fairly myopic in this business and that they will hire you to do what you've been, what you've done before. Sure. So be careful what you pick to do because you're only going to get more of that. Yeah. And if you want to work with certain types of people, work with those people because they all, if those filmmakers will know each other and they'll confer. And so don't, you know, don't do, you know, 45 hours of comedy and expect to get a dark drama as your next job, because that's going to be a stretch for people to imagine you doing both. Um, and, you know, work with the type, you know, work with, the, if you can pick the types of people you like to work with, you'll get more of those if you work well with them in the same way. And, and I, that's, that I sort of figured out early on, like, I really liked working with, you know, Lynn Stopkowicz and Jeremy, and I was like, I'll do, I need to do more, more films like that. What and, did you enjoy about working with them? Uh, well, both of them were interested in, you know, the complexity of people, the complexity of, you know, personalities and human beings. I mean, drama is like an exploration of, um, like human behavior and how we relate to each other. And, you know, a story is like a, has a lot of elements to it that you relate to, right? The journey of characters and understanding and conflict. And I like stories that really illuminate that about the differences in people and why and how, you know, people are fully realized as, you know, complex um, individuals, not like, you know, stories that have like villains are not interesting to me because mm -hmm. like a, mm -hmm. a two-dimensional depiction of evil is is not accurate and right. it's not interesting and I don't think it's helpful as a, a story. There are things like, you know, gravitate to. It's like I, I met Conrad Hallman years ago and like he would describe it as he loves films like a good moral ethical dilemma, you know, which is something we face every day in everyday life. And you can make an entertaining story about that, you know, talking about the things we talked about earlier about the current state of, you know, this disaster state we find ourselves in, you know, something I brought up um, before is, like one of the best action movies ever made, it was made like in the last you know five or six years, is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. But that film essentially is a movie about survival and cooperation, you know, cooperating out of the needs for survival. Like that's what it's really about. Mm -hmm. And that film is anything but boring. If you went and said, "I'm going to make a film about cooperation," you'd be like, "Oh, what are you going to make a film about a film a food co-op? Oh, this is boring." You yeah. Know? But yeah. No, no. But that's an, that's a that's what the film is really about, and. Uh, it's an incredibly engaging and one of the best, you know, action films and most exciting mm -hmm. visual films, you know, made in like the last ten years. Um, so it's like sort of just finding that alignment with the material and the people. Yeah. And then that hopefully keeps going that way. So I just try to be, if I can, I'll be as picky as possible. If I, I don't want to, if I, I don't want to work on something I wouldn't want to watch. You know what I mean? If yeah. Possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we all have to, you know, we have to put all. We all have to put food on the table. So if you can afford to make your choices, make your choices smart. Yeah. And try and become the the you know the filmmaker and the partner that the people that are making the kind of work you want to do need. Yeah, yeah. Moving um, a little further along in your career, do you think that is there one thing that stands out that felt like a um, a really big moment that was kind of um, some sort of, a, of of an arrival in any way that about getting into that next step? Um, a bigger jump that you know led to Game of Thrones and Watchmen and these bigger these bigger projects. Well, it's like, I mean, well, there's a few things I'd mention. Um, I, got, I did the aerial photography on the Sweet Hereafter, which was only like four, four or five helicopter shots. Mm -hmm. And again, that was a filmmaker. That was Adam uh, meeting Lynn, and also Adam being wary of hiring just like an aerial specialist, like mm -hmm. someone who would only do that. He wanted a, someone he figured he could talk to. Uh, as a filmmaker and seen Kiss and I had done aerials on a couple other low budget sci-fi movies so I had enough experience to, to do it and he's like oh great if I could talk to someone like that who works in low budget art house movies I don't want to talk to someone who does sports or only action films he's just not that kind of uh, filmmaker but the 
you know, around the time, um, I don't know, like, just before, as I say, like the first sort of big sort of career transition happened when the whole early mid '90s was an explosion of independent films. A lot of those films were getting made and financed and bought by you know distributors, and you know you could get a career started by that. And then it all kind of dried up at some point. We yeah. didn't realize at the time that that was just like a, a, a you know a curve in the cycle of filmmaking where in the, you know when Miramax was going crazy and you know they were buying all these films and that, that was a real market where you could make, make a small movie with nobody in it and you could purchase and you could get in the theater. And then when that all kind of dried up, a lot of those filmmakers were like running out of. Fruit I feel like that there. is back again with A twenty four. Yeah, it might be. I think it, there's a, there's a constant transition and we're yeah. rebalancing that. It's always changing. But uh, a lot of filmmakers I was working with a lot weren't getting a lot of films made. And I was kind of running, I've done like some TV pilots and TV series I found mostly, you know, were ch- challenging prospects to work on as a, and, you know, to make the kind of good filmmaking quality I was hoping. And then this goes back to again, and the first guy I worked with, Peter Onestorf, did the first season of a show called The Killing uh, mm-hmm. for AMC. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to do the second season because he just found the pace of it like way too much, and and um, so he recommended me, and uh, and I didn't. I again liked the, the ABC pilot. I wasn't even on their radar. I was on Fox's radar or AMC. I was like persona non grata. He had plenty of other <laughs> credits and miniseries and stuff, but but Peter recommended me, and I had a great interview with Vina, uh, sued the showrunner, and she hired me for season two. I did three seasons of that. And that was an incredible experience because the t- she hired a lot of really interesting, independently minded directors. And so every like two and a half weeks, I was working on another filmmaker of like the caliber that I'd worked with on the art house movies I used to love. That was interesting and smart and super, you know, clever. Working on a very very dark drama, but they all brought this like really amazing energy. And every director was so different. I mean, yeah. Agnieszka Holland on one episode to Dan Adius the next episode, my first two polar opposite in terms of process. That's amazing. I had to, yeah, I had to adapt to like them and how to shoot for them and also adapt to shooting the show. And that three years was, uh, I worked with Brad Anderson and you know, Ed Bianchi, Nicole Cassell, who I worked with on Watchmen. Uh, it was an incredible, Keith Gordon, all these amazing filmmakers. And that really um, cemented the fact that uh, I was like, I'm going to be in this for the long haul because mm. I just found it so inspiring to work with all those filmmakers and it was uh and i got to still at least because it was a series and i was shooting every episode at least for me it was still telling one story i was still getting to be you know a part of telling a complete story mm-hmm. which is something that's important to me instead of just doing a little part of it it's mm-hmm. not as it's interesting as a filmmaker to help craft the whole thing and Mina's telling a long story and she's hiring a lot of directors but i'm you know part of the con- me and michael bolton the designer were part of the continuity to that mm-hmm. so you do fill the same role as you would if it was a feature even though you're working at a you know insane pace and shooting 45 minutes in seven days, but um, <laughs> it was uh, it was an amazing experience, and that you know that that sort of brought back a lot of the sort of indie roots of like the passion which all these people had, including Vina, combined with the you know the expertise and the knowledge we're slowly building to be able to shoot better, better quality material in shorter spans of time, and how yeah. to be very smart with those decisions, and that that was a that was a huge step. And that's the kind of thing that led to getting approval for Game of Thrones was um, working with those types of directors that also did a lot of HBO mm. uh, work. And Jeremy had had a long career with HBO at that point, And we'd known each other from I've shot I shot two other films with him mm-hmm. after his first film. And so when he asked for me, you know, I got approved uh, fairly quickly. And, and that was uh, if you ask for a marker for me when I got hired on Game of Thrones, I was like, OK, it's a show I'm a huge fan of. 
I know two of the cinematographers on it who I email regularly and, you know, I like, they are like, I you know huge fans of their work and to get a chance to, to, to ask to come join that and hopefully not screw it up was, uh, sure. was a huge honor. So, yeah. When, when that, when that came across, um, just to talk about game of Thrones for a bit, how are you, um, I'm curious, you know, approaching stuff that has already been out for a while and already has like a look and feel totally kind of locked in. How do you come in approaching it, um, trying to find a balance between just making the show that's already been made, but also obviously having your voice? Um, yeah. What, what's that balance like? Um, well, it's interesting. I think you want to, the show, if, like the look of the show evolved quite a lot after season one or two Italian DPs in that season. And then season two, uh, two cinematographers, uh, Jonathan Freeman, Kramer Morgenthau, had a big impact on the creating a, a little bit more natural look for the show, like a little sort of bigger sources, uh, simpler, you know, lighting. Very, I mean, the, the all the rooms and the type of sets lend themselves to sort of a Rembrandt type approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, it also also made you could do that kind of work in the time allotted that you had for the show. Yeah, more is, forgiving. You know, it sounds extravagant, but it's actually not. It's actually well when you're trying quite, to achieve what you're no, trying to achieve. Yeah, the time runs yeah, out. Yeah, it becomes uh, it becomes faster than anything else. So, uh, to answer your question, I want to make sure that whatever I do is going to fit within the world that's been created. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't. But then every choice I'm making should be come from the same place of like, here's the script, and I want to make the right choices with my director for how to visually interpret it and make the best journey for our episode. But do it within the palette that's kind of established, and then. Even though if there's a certain mood, I will do that mood or the mood I, you know, the wanted to create the story. If it's been done before, I'm just going to do do it my way. But I want to yeah. make sure it's not going to stand out so much that it's going to feel like another world. It's got to feel like the same world. And so, you know, you can cherry pick the types of things you've seen in the show you liked before. Uh, but then you want to pick all the moods and the type of way you shoot for the episode. At that point, there's a few, there were a few, you know, kind of rules that, had sort of been laid out. It's a very proscenium type show. It's sort of like a certain lens selection that's mostly used at that point that gets favored. The showrunners have their favorite things, the least favorite things they know visually from other things they've liked and not liked. You sort of find the recipe for things like that they don't like. And then you sort of interpret that and you still have to do your job and shoot your episode the way you want to shoot it. Um, just want to, you just want to fit into the world, okay? Yeah. So it actually, it's not, like, it's not like it takes the creativity away uh, in something like that, you're just trying to fit into the world. As yeah, it yeah. It's a different thing on a film. You have a much, obviously, a bigger palette to pick from because mm-hmm. you're, you know, creating all the choices from the start. Like when sure. you're doing Watchmen, that's a whole different thing. You're, you've got a graphic novel and all these ideas you're throwing at the wall, trying to figure out the structure you will use and visual ideas you will carry forward. But it's still an incredibly rewarding experience and something like that. Also, because the quality was so incredibly high, and I was, you know, you're terrified of, you know getting up to the bar that it's at now. So it's like getting on the Olympic team and like not trying to screw up. <laughs> yeah. Like the, yeah. Um, I, I, it's interesting that you, you tied it into Watchmen because I really wanted to dive into Watchmen because I was um, a really huge fan of the season and, and in particular talking about um, episode six, the extraordinary being. Yeah. Um, which I think, I, I think it was one of the best hours of television in the last year personally. Um, and I think from a cinematography standpoint, I think it was one of the most um, visually um, arresting and uh, beautiful things I've, I've seen in a, in, in a long time. I, you know, for me, it's on my it's on my personal favorite short list of television episodes, maybe maybe well, ever. Um, th- th- thank you very much. It's very it's a high compliment. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the episode. So thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And, you know, it, a lot of it, I think it's for a few reasons 
you know, I think one, what Damon Lindelof did from just a creative standpoint about how to like make that whole idea happen um, is really quite unbelievable, um, which certainly carries the weight of that episode and why it is so meaningful. But then the technical execution um, and bringing that to life was just so um, extraordinary um, that I was I was really hoping to in in kind of this last section here, just kind of drill into this episode in particular, yeah. um, because of how um, blown away I was by it, honestly. And you know, to talk about that in terms of the granular details, just starting from the beginning, how far out were you prepping um, for the episode, considering how intricate the storytelling was and the fluidity from scene to scene? I would imagine that that would bring about prep in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, a lot of the things that I got to do on that episode in terms of prep was something that I've been trying to bring to other. It's the things you would do with a um, like a complex film where you're trying to, or even on Game of Thrones for the example, where certain sections, because of the constraints of budget, if got if you have a lot of visual effects, you get storyboard carefully, plan your shots carefully because everything has to be. I mean, they have a very limited budget despite its size. Yeah, uh, you can't just keep, do willy nilly and pick later. You really have to be precise about what you're gonna end up using and and you know we've all done that in filmmaking to various degrees uh but usually it's for those specific things where you have to do that in this case i've always wanted to do something more along the lines where you did plan all that because the transitions were so intricate intricate to the script and yeah we had to plan more carefully and kind of do the whole episode in some way and pre-visualize the whole episode if possible it seemed like that would be the only way honestly yeah, and it, and reading the script, I read the script I'm like, wow, he's describing stuff like, okay, it's uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Birdman meets this, and like, so he's, you know, Damon is Damon's laying out the. By the way, here are these films that took a hundred days to shoot and yeah. a year to make, uh, and good luck. Yeah. And but he, um, but he also wrote a lot of the transitions in very specifically, even if they weren't. Uh, I'm not surprised. For, yeah, I mean, he's I mean, he's a he's a brilliant writer, so it's like he he wrote a lot of that in there, and there's a lot of specific imagery that he wrote and and point of view and then we would figure out between steve and i well how do we want to do the you know the point of view how do we want to be in you know in his eyes sometimes out of his eyes how do we manage these transitions mm-hmm. but to make a long story short i i was looking for looking for i've been looking for the opportunity to do something like that for a long time and i couldn't have imagined a more incredible script to get to to try that on the the prep for the episode so the idea the concept was basically to pitch this uh, to do like a proof of concept for everything for the entire episode. So we could plan all the transitions, plan all the shots, and try and do it with as few cuts as possible when possible. As you know, so there's edits in the episode, but yeah. try not to rely on edits mm-hmm. and not and not to, you know, give them a lot of leeway to cut it differently if we had to, to try and really find the strongest way to shoot it mm-hmm. uh, that would stick. Mm. And and that meant um, and one of our producers, Joey Berti, had done a few other episodes of uh, sort of single shot type stuff, but he kind of was aware of the kind of work that was involved. And and I so I pitched to Steve and I said, what we should really should do is we should get our second team, like our uh, our stand-ins, you know, you know, off book with their scripts in all the locations that we pick. And I'll take out my Artemis, you know, directly uh, find on my phone and go through and just come up with all the various ways, shoot them all, and then we should cut them together and sort of plan out how they work, pace them out. So that that will determine, you know, what angle. I mean, we're doing stuff in 1930s and 50s in New York. I mean, that doesn't exist, right? So we can't do visual effects for everything. So we have to really carefully plan this: what streets we'll use, where what storefronts will be, you know, fake. You previs the, the entire thing. Yeah, basically, and we would do that, you know, in every location we'd go to, you know, with our, you know, some of the art department with us, either Jay, the art director, or um, or Christian, the amazing production designer. 
uh, like that's, you know, and, and did we did the entire episode like that, figuring out like rough shape. Okay. He's designing a set already for June's apartment. And we're yeah. like, okay, well we could do this and this, and then these windows and how we do with the glass and basically that for the whole entire episode. And, uh, that was the big thing. And then, then we could edit them together. And, that makes so uh, much sense. I would imagine how, how pre-visualization like that, it, I, 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 I can't see it being done any other way, really. No, and yeah, and I couldn't either, and and because there's so many technical things, because some of the shots were really difficult to execute. No not kidding. For just for my perspective, but the cast and everybody else and the camp, you know, for Chris, my camera operator. I mean, once Chris sort of Quavis sort of saw like the detail and the le- the level of precision that was going to be required. I mean, it sort of changes everybody's game, and then it then also raises the whole bar for the crew. Realize, oh yeah, we're just going to keep doing this until we get it exactly right. Yeah. There's no cut. Yeah. Like we got all everyone's the lines going to be right. The camera's going to be in the right place. You know, we can't have a you know funny shot. Like everything's got to work, and it's uh, it's an incredibly um, you know uh, intense experience that way. But it builds great crew momentum, and everyone gets on it, right? I know there's no what if it, if if there's a fuck up, people go oh shit, you know, like yeah, we'd like a we'd like a four minute one around the table when um, when uh, in Will's apartment with June, when uh, you know the uh, the uh, non the in disguise Captain Metropolis shows up, yeah, yep. you know, to, to try and entice him. Yeah, that's a four minute one we did. We tried a couple different paths with the camera. There's two cuts in the scene now that are from alternate takes because mm. uh, they shortened the scene slightly. But we had to make it work as one. Yeah. And with all the transitions from the pan from this camera, and you're like, well, what what line could be off camera and do all that? And that was an incredibly difficult shot to execute. Uh, it's just like the one that comes between them with the when the the uh, the image on the of the uh, film from the pilot goes on the wall mm-hmm. and goes around between June and Will and she's like telling me about the film you watched as a kid mm-hmm. oh trust in the law and then it appears behind them mm-hmm. I wanted to do that I wanted to do that in camera I didn't want to do a visual effect so we had to like get an iris in our projector and figure out how to get that over the crane arm because the entire thing on a small crane like every shot had a whole layer of complicated you know, technical design yeah to, to figure out after yeah. we conceptualized it so yeah. you have to conceptualize it and then have enough time to then figure out how to do it how you can afford to do it schedule it for just how technically how to make it uh and that was the only way to do it and we had if that episode had been you know earlier in the season or later in the season we could not have made it in the way we did it came as the first uh episode after the christmas break and we took a longer break mm. they wanted to take, they want to take a more a bit more time editing the other episodes because they was they were still conceptualizing the scripts for the ending and stuff so interesting with it they took a short hiatus and i was like okay well yeah, time. I came back. I came back a bit early, and I was like, "Oh, if I can come back early, we can get. More, we can actually have more prep." It's like starting episode two again, which was after the pilot. We had a longer time. It was the only way we could have done it. We had that extra That's time. That's fascinating. And we used every minute of it. Yeah, so. yeah. And I, I wanted to ask just like some, some, I guess, granular questions too. Yeah, of course. Because I'm just curious about that kind of stuff. Like in the opening interrogation <coughs> scene um, from the fake TV show that mm. that started the episode, there was a really interesting use of split diopter. And I'm curious yeah. for things like that, you know, is that something that is written into the script or are you suggesting that as a cinematographer for how to achieve that? Uh, in that case, I suggested that. That was part of the overall conversation when we were, when we, when we started episode two, we had a lot of discussions about, because I didn't shoot the pilot, Andre uh, Perek shot the pilot, we also mm-hmm. directed episode four. Mm-hmm. And, and when they finished the pilot, you know, one of the great things about the show as well is they had a time to look at the pilot, okay, decide what worked, what didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, they recast a couple of characters. They we reshot a bunch of stuff in new sets later because they the police station was a new set that we built. So oh, all that stuff the pilot we shot yeah. later did episode two. And you know, uh, Nicole and and uh, Dan, everybody re they really tasked me with, okay, well here's 
here are the things we want to bring into the show more here like let's pitch us more ideas we want to bring from the graphic novel like visually and and uh i've done a lot of work with nicole before she really like hand you know she really asked a lot of uh of me to come up with other ideas and all the things they discussed in the past we went through all these concepts and one of the things that's interesting about the graphic novel or just this graphic novel stuff in general is if everything's in two dimensions, everything can focus, right? So there's no right. focus shift and that stuff. So there's right. a lot of background foreground composition stuff in the graphic novels for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that's an interesting thing we could do sometimes. And we can do split diopters. And uh, Liam, uh, our focus puller, was like, oh, yeah, we should we should maybe – I think they I think might, have, might have carried them on the pilot. Oh, maybe they didn't. But there's uh, there's a few sets of sliding diopters, which are mm-hmm. split diopters on a little rail that you can then mm-hmm. easily more use a third of the frame or you can, you can fudge them into weird angles and – Simply, so we carried that, and we also carried a, 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 a an airy swing and tilt, uh, swing and shift lens lens kit. Yeah, for similar ideas, because I thought that would definitely be something to do in a comic book, where you could do big foreground background. You can put plot elements in there in the front, because in a graphic novel, also you're allowing your eye to wander and look where you want. Sure. You know? and, and a lot of filmmaking is conceptually using Chosen. you know light, darkness, and focus to direct people's attention. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we want I want to make sure we could do the opposite. We'd have two things mm-hmm. and you could you could look between the two, like the pill bottle in the foreground episode two with yeah. with uh, old man Will and Old Man Will. Yeah. That's a split aftershot. And and this was a that exact this would be great to make a huge profile of Hooded Justice with the two cops in the mirror would seem like something right out of the graphic novel. So. It's it's cool to to use that specifically to kind of harken back to its original um, medium. Of of the graphic yeah. novel, I and you know that's that's a and it's cool that you were, um, the one that pitched that idea and that everybody bought in and that's that's exciting when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah, I mean it's like you're working with a team and so you sort of keep building off each other, right? If we try a shot that didn't work, some would work. We do, well, we're looking for reflections all the time, things like round, uh, round, you know, round elements were good because there were a lot of sort of round things and just the Watchmen shape, you know, use of color. It was a it was a really detailed conversation design wise. Yeah. Christian, the designer, myself, Heavy Aether, DP, Nicole, and like just constantly trying to develop those ideas. And yeah. so by the time we got to six, like we kind of knew how to use the adopters well. I thought, well, here's a great opportunity yeah. with this giant profile of him. Sure. And uh, and the rest of the episode doesn't have a lot because the camera, that that episode has a totally different feel. It's all this sort of wandering camera that's very subjective and it's the audience. It's not really, you know, we don't really know wh- who it's in. The, how it moves is very specific to yeah the feel of like a gentle floating and not, you know, too, you know, not herky jerky, not handheld. It wanted to be this like, Oh, I don't know where I'm going on this voyage, but I'm being carried along. It's like you're being carried along like a river. It's almost like the memories are like a river. You know what I mean? Like, mm. you, like you get plunked onto it and you float along to this person's life. Yeah. And I, I wanted, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that that, cause I wanted to talk about the color choices too with black mm. and white for nostalgia. Um, I guess one, I, like it makes it makes a certain amount of sense. It, it seems like a straightforward choice, but I am curious to hear what the discussions were about making that choice, and then also how that impacted um, your lighting in the black and white scenarios and how you were approaching the grade. So, uh, I'll answer the black and white portion first. It sure. wasn't originally in the script going to be black and white. We were trying to figure out, um, of course, when we start when I started the the season in episode two, we already had a couple different worlds. Okay. We had these flashback from the pilot, like the Tulsa riot. Mm-hmm. And then we had, to, and then suddenly in episode two, we're like, Oh, now we're, at, we're in like the German front lines and we're, you know, with Obi Williams and it's the uh, German officer and the, you know, the, the typist and all that, that has to be its own sort of look. And then we have to have, what do we want the main world of Watchmen to look like color palette wise and contrast wise and, 
And so we already had like three things. And then we had the fake TV show. We already had four looks we had to sort of just make distinct. <laughs> yeah. And turned it turned out we had more to do, which we had, you know, which at that point we didn't know. So it was really about a process of trying to design the entire palette of the thing so that the to the you know the world would seem distinct visually, but also uh, and would work art direction wise, but also not conflict too much and and be distinct enough without we were, I was determined not to make them so distinct that one looked like a very heavy grade, like a very heavy flashback grade that was so obvious it was uh, kind of distracting. So yeah. you don't want to pull people. I don't believe in trying to pull the audience out of something too much. Right, right. But they want to be distinct. And then Christian was a our the designer who did the didn't do the pilot but did um, the series. Uh, he did the UK show Utopia, which mm-hmm. is a you know great looking show and very low budget. But that was a lot of as he described a lot of it is just basically very careful palette selection, like just remove certain things. Yeah, that's an interesting. You, you know what I mean? And so mentality. we tried to do, like we took we took all the primary colors out of. The Watchmen world mostly, except for the yellow, which was distinct for the police and became this sort of because of the comic, sure. a single thing. Yeah. We took the primaries out of the Watchmen world most completely. We put tons of primaries in the American hero story world. So all the Absolutely. bright colors and yeah. everything. Yeah. And and so when we were looking for episode six, it's like, well, I kind of want to do something a bit like, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller or something that has a real like a tobacco feel. But I don't want to do it all like orange and too strong. And it was like, okay, we could try some desaturated, but then we're getting too close to the look of the old war. But maybe it could be like the look of the old war stuff we'd done, which is a bit that way. Um, and then at some point, you know, I think it was Damon probably was just like, what if we just go full black and white? And I'm like, well, I mean, it'll be amazing. But also at this point, it was very late in the process. The sets are being painted and like, it's a, oh, wow. black and white's a very, black and white. You're playing very, with very contrast instead of colors. Process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because two sh- two different colors could be look the same in black and white. Yeah, right? exactly. Because uh, the, the, the gray tone is going to be the same. Yeah. So uh, it was it was quite late, and I was like, well, if we do this, the one thing I was like, the one thing I was hesitant about was like the one thing I really want to do is use the red of certain things linked together because we have the red his red file folder, we have the blinking red light, or the. Uh, uh, for the recording of the, you know, pro- uh, programming the projectors. Mm-hmm. And there's a through line to the red thing, which he follows, which is Cape. And also, like, you know, Hood of Justice is basically purple and gray and black, right? You know what that's going to look like? Black and white. Yeah. Be all <laughs> like this dark stuff. It's like he's, you're not going to look like, he's not going to look like a Hood of Justice anymore. Like, the purple's going to go black. Yeah. You really, we have to find the right shade to make sure there's a gray tone difference. Mm. So I was a bit nervous about it. It happened fairly late in the process, but we still had enough time to shoot some quick tests. So, Technically, so how that works is uh, in the building of the other looks at the beginning of the ser- series, the way I the way I like to work, if possible, is I want to make sure that we see on set something that's very close to the, you know, what I want the photography to look like when it's finished. This involves building like a custom viewing lot usually, which is kind of like, you know, I would almost like picking a film stock in some way. Sure, yeah. Uh, with some type of built-in, you know, approximate, you know, gamma curve and mm-hmm. contrast level and all that stuff that I want. Uh, so that on set, the directors, everybody can see, well, this is where we're heading. This is what it's going to be pretty close. Yeah. It's because it's not, it's not, because once we move to, you know, high def shooting and, and digital shooting, it's not really fair to make filmmakers watch something and tell them later. It's going to look all different later because yeah. they, they're staring at it all day and they're going to edit that and they're going to fall in love with whatever it is. Oh, temp so love you, is you, a, is a yeah, danger. Yeah. It's a nightmare, right? So you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. So that I learned that lesson, you know, um, long ago and so that was important so in doing all these looks i knew i had to do that also it helps me in terms of the speed you have to work in tv you know if i've got a good grade then i can light my eye very quickly yeah and you know and i can respond to notes from the director or things to report or story that isn't clear mm-hmm. and you can do it very quickly and it's a there's a real good reason to, to spend the time and prep to do that properly yeah 
So now, you know, now the, we're suddenly doing black and white in a very last minute time. And thankfully, I had, uh, I had to go to, um, uh, I, flew, I flew to L.A. from Atlanta to grade stuff from the earlier episodes. And I was like, look, we have to spend some time on, on doing this black and white because now it looks like it's going to be black and white. Like we're, we had to get approval from HBO still, but I was pretty sure we we're going to get it. So with um, uh, with our final colorist Todd uh, uh, Todd Bachner, um, who done on Damon's other shows, and I was just just learning to work with on this. I, he built my first LUTs for uh, you know the beginning of the show, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so we we approached it as trying to make I was trying to make a, a much like a fairly high contrast uh, black and white, something with a lot of with a deep black and with um, a lot of contrast, it would almost require a bit more light. It would compress stuff a bit, almost like uh, if you if if you're familiar with black and photography, if you're kind of putting like a red filter on something and you go outside, it would create this. You know, the the blue would go darker or something yeah, like that. So we yeah. played we played all with the red channel and and we played some stuff to create something that was pretty uh, extreme looking. And I shot some, I shot some tests for it in a couple of the sets, uh, and that allowed me to then light more specifically to the kind of gray tones I was going to get because I once I had built sure. the contrast into the LUT, uh, I could pretty much do it by eye and do that. Uh, it was a pretty deep let, so it, was, it would have, you know, had uh, lots of exposure in the shadows, so it was, it was very clean looking. You could make good transitions to blackness without getting any noise, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was the basic approach. And then just light it a bit like, you know, in some ways an older film with some harder light, some, you know, hard light that would normally use in some circumstances. Yeah. And, and I used an older filter, too, that was also had an older feel. I used a double fog, which I hadn't used in about 20 years. Uh-huh. Which has a certain type of glow to it with the practicals. It feels a little bit like old timey, like yeah, like the McCabe Miss Miller was shot with the double fog filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and it worked great with the it worked great with the higher contrast uh, lighting and the um, higher contrast designs. So. Yeah, and so that was a conscious decision too to go to a bit more hard lighting to kind of harken back to those times in terms of the aesthetic yeah, from those periods. I did. I didn't want to get into because of the nature of the moving camera. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do like old school. Uh, super hard light, hard shadow type work, like yeah. from real film noir. Yeah, because our camera was wandering around, so I needed yeah, yeah, that would have been a danger. But it was a, but at least allowed me to play with the amount of contrast you would get with that. Like mm-hmm. may, it, may, it may have been a row of light bulbs above the table, but I could let it fall off into darkness behind, for example. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But you had to use all, I had to use all of the, you know, tricks in the in the toolkit to get around camera shadows and, you know. Moving camera, moving lights, you know, things like that. Uh, yeah, it's a ballet awesome. act. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask, too, and because I'm curious about this kind of thing. You know, some of the fight scenes, there was melancholy music playing to juxtapose the yeah. action. And I'm curious about your knowledge about that going into it. And did you know that that would be um, the music that was playing? And did that impact at all the choices you were making either for the camera movement, the, the blocking, knowing that you're going to have music that is kind of um, juxtaposing instead of being as high energy um, as the content you're shooting, does that uh, affect at all how you were thinking about it in, in terms of the, the relationship to what the sound bed would be? Yeah, it, it normally it, it would, and uh, a lot of times those choices were made later, and uh, they weren't. Uh, they were coming out in the cut. Then Stephen, I think, and the music supervisor were picking those, mm-hmm. uh, and then I think Damon had a big hand in the in those as well. We didn't have, I think, a couple. There might have been a couple of songs mentioned in the script for a couple of moments, but a lot of them were all coming later. Mm. What it, what we did know was which scenes would be a montage, which wouldn't be, and so kind of emotional content was still 
like what's happening. Mm-hmm. And and then if you layer uh, a sort of a juxtapositional thing on top of it, mm-hmm. it should still work because we're, what visually we're doing is one thing and it's consistent and it's got a point of view. Mm-hmm. And then you suddenly put a layer that uh, is running counter to it. That should still work. You know what I mean? Even yeah. if you don't know what that other layer is going to be yet. Totally. As long as you... Yeah, it's almost like you don't want to play to that because then you're actually not going to create the contrast. You want to keep your yeah. You can argue idea. it's almost better that you didn't like, even know. Yeah, it wants to be harrowing. Like the moment he uh, gets jumped in the alley by the cops, mm-hmm. uh, and I knew I was like, you know, I, I really wanted the shot between his legs being dragged to the tree and seeing the rope being put over. Just do that all. I tried to do that as one shot because it was just going to be really harrowing to suddenly be this person, knowing yeah. we were going to eventually be inside his eyes, getting a bag put over his head and yeah. hoisted off the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to sort of, you know, hint at that early and not do it only in that one moment. So, you know, we should design that shot and all that sequence just for the maximum amount of, uh, you know, the frightening nature of that experience because it's going to be the, you know, thing which, uh, you know, drives uh, young Will to be, is the thing that will drive, uh, you know, Regina's character's understanding of him. Yeah. And so it was just a, on purpose to try and be as visceral as possible in that moment. And then to have the music layer on top of it kind of this echoey you know frightening thing was a starts as a commentary and then with it sort of echo becomes this you know reinforcement of the horror of it it was a, a interesting transition between the two yeah and I, it, it's interesting that you brought it to that because i wanted to ask about this too um the the episode had a lot of powerful and disturbing imagery in terms of yeah. um you know lynched bodies being dragged by police cars um yeah people being hung by trees, obviously, you know, imagery that is extremely um, sensitive. And I, and I was, I'm curious about what the conversations were about how, how to film those things. And if there was any like particular dialogue that was happening about how to either treat it with a certain type of sensitivity or respect or, or anything like that. Like how, how do, how are you approaching those things? Well, first, I mean, I got to single out Stephen Williams, the director who was my first time working with him as, you know, someone who's, you know, probably the most sensitive to that and the most, he's a, he's a very, he's just a generally very sensitive person, mm-hmm. both in terms of actor process and, and everything. He's just very, just, a, he's an empathetic, you know, caring and um, thoughtful person about all those, all those issues. And I think that the most important thing for us was we had to, you know, pick a point of view and stick with it that would, you know, maximize the, you know, the, the singular point of view of the episode, which is to be Will's experience. Mm-hmm. And if we stuck with that, we figured we'd be, we'd be in good shape. We wouldn't be, you, you can, I mean, the specific things in the script, like the bodies by the police car, which are part of the jumbled memories of the pilot, right? Because that's, that's actually not happening in that timeline of the black and white thing. That's why their bodies are in color. That's supposed to be part of the weird fourth wall breaking uh, jumble of memories from when he was a young kid. Uh, that, are, that are popping up in this imperfect experience of this journey through the life because of the, you know, overdose and the nostalgia. So, I mean, that was done for real on set. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was all a bit of a frightening thing to watch, for sure. Yeah. But th- so some of the things were specific. But as far as, like, being inside his eyes for being hung, yeah. you know, it was sort of described to be, like, a first-person experience, but then how we would do it was just, you know, us trying to figure out what would look most be the best uh, just to make the audience experience the most intense mm-hmm. because then, then it would, you know, if it feels truthful to that, then I think, you know, you're, if you can get to the emotional truth of the experience for the point of view you're picking, yeah. then I think everything else takes care of itself. Hopefully. No, I think that's well said. That makes sense. Um, do you feel like this episode is, 
your favorite work of yours uh, or what do you th- do you have something that is i'm i'm really i mean like most filmmakers and uh sure people who do this yeah. i have a incredibly harsh critic on myself uh, so yeah i know many times you know many times you go home and you put your hand in your, your face and go oh my god like what i totally shit the bed today and uh and later you like you have this great idea later you know you wake up at four in the morning with a haunted look like oh my god i just realized what i didn't do um <laughs> and uh and i'm I'm proud of how this episode came together. I'm really proud of how, you know, we could have made this episode at the beginning of the season. You know, our crew had really coalesced. We came back after the little break, you know, energized, and we were handed a incredibly difficult challenge, and, you know, everybody stepped up to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really proud of the episode uh, in terms of how it looks, and I'm really proud that we managed to, you know, I think tell that story really well. You know, mm-hmm. it became a harrowing and, you know, uh, it's a pivotal moment in the, in the story of the entire uh, nine-episode journey of the show. And I'm proud that it has the effect that it, you know, I watch it. I'm like, wow, it really works. And that's the thing about doing the previs is you can evaluate, like, how, like, do, like is the camera in the right place? Like, is this sort of in a feel right? Even with just our, you know, second team reading the lines, it gave you a chance to do that. And I think that's the biggest value of prep is the value. Like, hey, if this, we could pull this off, this is really going to work. Yeah. And when you... And once we start doing takes, I mean, uh, Jesse, our playback operator, like we, I mean, we have to, we're having to match a lot of stuff to the transition. So we're watching the previous takes just on playback and then lining up, you know, where the camera will join or where there's a seamless transition or when we're burying a cut in a, in a pan or something. And so once you've done a few, you can watch it and you can look, okay, these three scenes are working really well together. And then it can help you, you know, it can help you understand how the next scene's got to change to, know to fit the flow you know what i mean yeah because you actually have complete like oh we can watch like 10 minutes of the show now all in a row we've done like all these scenes go together and you can really get a sense if it's working um which you can normally do on a feature you've got a longer time to shoot and you know your editor is, is cutting scenes and you can watch them okay this is working and i think that's changing and maybe this actor is not you know coming across what we want and so we'll you know how will we shoot the next scene to, to bring that to, to, to bear a lot so much of filmmaking is making those fine-tuning adjustments and by doing so much prep we got to do a lot of that so i think the the precision of what you mentioned earlier and why i'm very proud of how precise the episode is is because of that and and just the chance we had the opportunity to do it and i i think we i think we got made the most out of it i hope and i'm proud of that at least yeah no i'm i'm i can say with certainty that i think you did um and then last question i i've been um lucky to be able to speak with um, ASC members as of late. And mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious to just chat with them a little bit about their um, being an ASC member. What, what year did you become ASC? Oh. I'll tell you right now. One second. Okay. So I had to go look at the plaque. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was 20, uh, it was 2017. Okay, okay. And uh, and I just remember the ASC, the CSC in Canada, like, yeah, in like 1998, like right, like a long time. Right, right. And um, it was uh, yeah, my two, my three sponsors were uh, Jonathan Freeman, who I've known uh, since he grew up in Toronto, and uh, and uh, and he's one of the DPs on Game of Thrones, Boardwalk, and mm-hmm. he's a. If you ever have a chance to interview him, he's an amazingly. I think he's one of the most challenged people that I know personally, and he's uh, also he's a really good speaker. And he's a really thoughtful, thoughtful guy, he's a special person. Cool. And um, and uh, Peter Wunstorf, who I mentioned earlier, sure. also a total genius. Yeah. And uh, and John Bartley, who used to shoot the X Files, and uh, he used oh. to be gaffer 
I used to lap off for him on some small shoots when I was just starting out. I'm cool. like volunteering on weekends to do anything. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're my three sponsors. That's awesome. What what is it um what does it mean to you to to, to be in the ASC? Well, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, when you know when you're when you're 20 years old and you're from a small thing and you see ASC members, you're like, well, it must be really good. Then you see a film you don't like, you're like, what's it? And then you hear some guys in LA, you know, shit talking the organization, like calling it ASC, another shitty cameraman. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you think, what's all this about? So, but as I've gotten older, the thing I really appreciate about, you know, professional organizations in general yeah. and about what you know, is uh, there's a the feeling of fellowship, right? Like mm. we all do the same job and we're all passionate about trying to, you know, tell the best stories and do the best work possible. And to have, you know, uh, an organization with the history that it has, the number of like members and innovations and the uh, the care that it takes to, you know, try and protect the rights of artists, including cinematographers. Um, it means a lot to be asked to be part of that and to do that. And it's, it's, you know, when you're younger, you're always like a rebel, you know, when you're making your films getting Sundance, you just don't think of yourself as being part of institutions. You mm-hmm. think of like, you're going to, you know, you want your, your young filmmaker, you want to rip everything down and you know, you're everyone's, everyone's young and arrogant at some point. And you know, as I'm getting older, I'm 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 much I'm very appreciative of the kind of stewardship of um, you know teaching next generations and you know trying to looking out for the art form and the things that an organization like that can do because we're we're only as strong as all our members, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some brilliant people in that organization, and and uh, you know I've become so very honored to be asked to be part of it. And then I'm just gonna you know bring my own attitudes and own you know perspectives on things to help you know keeping uh, pushing you know, the organization forward and being part of it. I'd rather be part of the conversation now and be able to have this and look at the, even a chance to talk to someone like you. I mean, the fact that, you know, you're a fan of the work that we've done and I get to speak to you and, you know, and it's um, great. What I think it's important about filmmaking is, a, you know, it's a great privilege and I don't want to waste that and I want to be able to, you know, articulate that well. And the organization does a big, has a, you know, can be a big uh, voice for that. And I think it's really important. Cool. That's great. That's great. Well, um, it's been it's been a great conversation. I was uh, really looking forward to, to breaking down um, that episode, and uh, you know, just want to thank you for your for your time and and going through everything. No problem. I wish there was. I was trying to think of other episode, other sections to shoot. Oh yeah, with this one. <laughs> I was trying to think. It's one thing we we had. At one point, we were trying to figure out. Here's the kind of thing that happens in this sort of improv. Like there was a lot of scenes. Yeah. That we we didn't quite have time to shoot everything properly, or. So we had to figure out what to cut out. And when there's one, there was a couple scenes that, if anything, one story beat that we sort of missed was June sort of seeing that young Will was kind of losing himself in his, uh, you know, his second life as Hood of Justice. Mm-hmm. And so a bit of disappro- an element of disapproval and concern that she would have that she, at the end, she's like, I'm taking my kid away. You've lost yourself. You're never going back. Mm-hmm. There were other scenes that illustrated that we had to all get rid of. And we had to like, okay, we have to do all these beats somehow we got to shoot it in half a day <laughs> and we got to figure out a way to do it. So, and we've had sort of budgeted doing like one sort of motion control type thing somewhere in the show. We're like, okay, we haven't quite, maybe we'll use it for this scene then. Like not use it over there. Let's use it for this scene. So it's the montage where he comes back after, you know, joining the, the sort of um, the Minutemen and being just disappointed that they're not taking his plan seriously. And, you know, he walks back, plunks himself down in front of his mirror and it's all a single shot after that, up until going back to the mirror. And it was a really complex choreography involving all the actors. Because once you do a motion control shot, you don't, you, you have to design the shot with all the performances in mind and sure. shoot them, shoot them all separately. Yeah. And then the, the actor has having to move to the camera because the camera pacing 
is doing its thing. They have, they have to just keep their same timing. So it's quite tricky to sort of design. And then we had this young kid at two things, like the young kid running on the hall and the young kid performing them. Like they mean they have to act to the time that we have. And, we to, and it was really tricky to pull off. We had to day-night transitions to build in of the various looks. Um, but I'm really proud of that sequence because it actually sort of brought across, we had the one story beat we couldn't quite fit in there. But it did, you know, it did give us a montage of time and uh, the various things happening in his life and then and then how nothing, everything stayed the same for him. We finished in this right part where he was, like he hadn't changed. And I think the concept, you know, uh, came through. Uh, and yeah, it turned out really well. Cool, cool, cool. Well, um, you know, I know we have many weeks or months left before things get back to normal. So I wish you, uh, yeah. you know, stay healthy. And um Likewise, you, you as well. And Good we luck will. in New York. And yeah, thanks. thanks so much for the interest in our show and uh, in talking about some time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you.